I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, the business affairs editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the program, advice from a commodities trader to Henry Tricks, our energy editor. Henry predicting the future is a son of a bitch. And, uh, and I think we should always bear that in mind when we're talking about commodities. It is a particularly uncertain time at the moment. And how did the biggest internet event in history end? It was a draw. So it was very disappointing for uh, people who'd waited months and months in the build-up to see what would happen. It was a majority draw. First, though, has there been a breakthrough in the efforts to revamp the NAFTA trade agreement? President Donald Trump announced a bilateral deal on Monday between America and Mexico during a televised phone call with Enrique Peña Nieto. It's an incredible deal. It's an incredible deal for both parties. Most importantly, it's an incredible deal for the workers and for the citizens of both countries. Uh, Our farmers are going to be so happy. You know, my farmers, the farmers have stuck with me. I said we were going to do this. And Mexico's promised to immediately start purchasing as much farm product as they can. They're going to work on that very hard. And uh, as you know, highly recognize this, especially because of the point of understanding we are now reaching on this deal. Y espero y deseo que realmente la parte con Canadá se pueda ojalá y deseo que se pueda concretar. And I really hope and I desire, I wish that the part with Canada will be materializing and uh, in a very concrete fashion. Does this end months of acrimonious negotiations? Our US economics editor, Sumaya Keynes, is watching this all unfold and tweeting as she goes. She joins us from Washington, D.C. Hello, Sumaya. Hello, Andrew. Tell us, what have the Mexicans signed up to? Well, slightly less than some of the headlines might suggest. So the Mexicans have been very clear that they want the Canadians to be on board. There has been no signature on any dotted line. And, you know, really, they've entered into an agreement with the Americans. They have resolved some of the trickiest issues, probably the most substantive changes to the cars sector, the way that cars are traded uh, in this new version of the trade deal. But it's not the case that you know we have this perfectly formed and perfectly explained new bilateral trade agreement that's not what's happened here let's assume that everyone signs up to something what are we actually looking at we're looking on cars in particular we're looking at more more content in vehicles being made in in north america is that the best way to summarize the sort of the highlights if you like of the mexican american deal Overall, it looks like the requirements for a car in order for it to flow tariff-free between Mexico and the US, those requirements have been made more stringent. And the Trump administration would argue that that is going to raise the number of jobs both in the US but also in Mexico. 
Um, it's going to raise the incentive to buy North American parts and steel and aluminium. It's going to raise the incentive to pay workers a wage above $16 an hour. Crucially, we don't know how quickly these things are going to be phased in yet, which is important for you know whether the car companies are just going to shrug their shoulders and say, no, we're going to pay the 2.5% tariff. The other thing that the Trump administration has really been emphasizing is the fact that this new deal is going to have enforceable labor standards. So this is really important to Robert Lighthizer, who's the United States trade representative, because tighter and enforceable labor standards is going to be the thing that could get the labor unions on side and also you know, the left wing of the Democratic Party. He has this vision that this trade deal is going to be passed in this bipartisan, wonderful, hugs all round way. And so, you know, it's really those provisions that he's saying, look, this is very different from anything we've agreed before. Well done, me. Okay, so what's the way to think about this? That this is part of an elaborate negotiation that is designed to bring the Canadians to the table. So the Mexicans and Americans have obviously just been talking to themselves at this at this point. What do we now expect to see happen with Canada? It does slightly look as though the Americans are trying to bounce the Canadians into signing a very, very speedy deal. So in order to use the Trade Promotion Authority, which is this way of getting this new trade legislation through the American Congress... In order to to use that, essentially, the Americans would have to notify Congress that they want to sign a deal on Friday or Saturday. And having agreed, you know, not just the bilateral issues, but actually a lot of the trilateral issues, lots of issues that actually Canadian had an interest in, the Americans and the, and the Mexicans have now seemed to have agreed, uh, the Americans... Uh, presumably are going to essentially present Canada with some kind of ultimatum saying, well, you know, do you want in? And if you don't, we're going to apply 25% tariffs on your cars. How likely is it that Canada in a period of two or three days, as you lay out, is just going to sign up to everything that that the Mexicans and the Americans have agreed? I think generally when predicting the Trump administration's trade policy, uh, you know, there are big uh, standard errors around any kind of prediction. It all depends, right? So, So we don't know how the politics of this is going to play out. It could easily become very, very toxic. You know, I really should emphasize that we we have not seen all the details of what has been agreed with the Mexicans. It could be that the Canadian negotiators, when they get to the table, they say, you know what, this would be a humiliation, we're not going to sign up. Or they could recognize that actually the Trump administration has presented them with, you know, two options, one of which is much worse than the other, and maybe signing up is is just the best way to get rid of this whole mess. Uh, at this stage, you know, it's, it's really hard to say definitively. I, you know, I think the one thing that we do know is that this is not going to be easy at all. You've laid out a lot of uncertainty here. Just a final question is, kind of, you know, if we spool forward to the, the weekend, what's the point at which we can sort of make a judgment on whether, you know, NAFTA is renegotiated or headed for collapse? Trade lawyers are arguing as we speak about whether the Trump administration is allowed to negotiate Congress of a bilateral deal, given that last year they told Congress that they would be negotiating a trilateral deal. So there's a question of whether they can actually go bilaterally. 
And clearly, if they can't, then, you know, on Friday, we could end up with nothing. Supposing in an extreme scenario, the Mexicans say, no, we negotiated, assuming the Canadians would be on board and, and we're not going to sign up for this anymore. You know, we could we could get a collapse. But we again, as, as we say, you, we could also get the Canadians signing up. And what that would mean is that there would be some kind of handshake agreement in principle then the Trump administration would notify Congress. It would give them 90 days warning. Then you would have the official signing of the deal between the the three heads of, of state. And then, only then, would each country go through the process of getting the deal implemented in domestic legislation, right? And then the big question becomes, how is the Trump administration going to get this passed by Congress? Okay, lots of questions, and it sounds like we'll have to talk to you repeatedly in in coming weeks. But for the moment, Sumer Keynes, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist. Next, from the Midwestern farm belt to the trading floors of Chicago, New York, London and Shanghai, this is a tricky time to be producing and trading commodities. Prices of many crops and industrial metals have been sagging in recent months, thanks in part to a rising dollar and fears of a trade war. Henry Trix, our commodities guru, is here. Hello, Henry. Hi, Andrew. So take us through the, the picture here. I think there are a few commodities where prices have been going up. In general, though, uh, it's a soft time for prices. So is this across the board and why so? It's not quite across the board in the sense that the heat that we've all been experiencing this summer has had a pretty devastating effect on the wheat crops in Europe. And so wheat prices almost alone are going up. But everything else has been extremely volatile and tending downwards over the last few months uh, since the trade war erupted between America and China. There's been fears, chiefly in the metals markets to start off with, that this could cause a sharp slowdown in growth, particularly in the emerging markets. And it's the emerging markets where demand for a lot of commodities comes from at the moment. But also you're seeing weakness in currencies, for example, the Brazilian real is causing a very sharp downturn in prices for commodities like sugar and coffee, which are at their lowest level for a decade or so. And corn and soybean in the US is also weak because they're having surprisingly bumper crops there. Okay, so why don't we dig into some of these? So we've got used to the idea of China as being the kind of primary driver of demand for commodities in in general. And the worry here is that a trade war and a slowdown in China is going to hit demand. Do we actually see that happening? There is not direct evidence that the trade war is having a negative impact already on either China's growth or ripple effects from China out to the developing world. But certainly the tariffs on Chinese imports to the US have led to retaliation. And that retaliation has affected soybean exports from the US to China. And price movements are sort of a combination of fundamentals and speculators moving to spot and jump on price trends. What do we see in terms of what's happening in in markets? Are bets predominantly on falling prices at this point or are people hoping for some kind of upturn? What's interesting is to see how metals that are widely traded globally, such as copper, which is traded in in the US, in London, in Shanghai, where there's a lot of speculative activity, these are being punished. 
the liquidity means it's very easy for speculators to jump on these commodities. And so there's been a sharp sell-off in copper over the last three months, having been pretty stable for most of the last year. On the other hand, you're seeing that demand for iron ore, coking coal and steel in China is pretty strong and prices have gone up in those commodities. And that's mostly because they're not particularly widely traded commodities on on exchanges where hedge funds, for example, are are piling in. They're much more sensitive to the sheer supply and demand factors of construction industry, housing industry, etc. And if you look out over the, the forthcoming months, is there anything here that changes this broadly downward picture? You've mentioned things like emerging market weakness, the trade war. We haven't touched on interest rates yet, but how do you see the commodities picture unfolding from here through to the end of the year? Well, let's not get too wrapped up in the macro global themes. One of the things that really drives commodities, particularly agricultural commodities, is the weather. And that you know, remains really unpredictable. Anything can happen. It's been very interesting. Last week, I was talking to farmers and traders and hedge fund people who are involved in what's called the pro-farmer Midwest crop tour, where they basically go to the cornfields and soybean fields in the in the Midwest and they scour the fields to work out exactly what the yields are. It's a funny kind of um, sharabang of people all going to try and work out what the weather has done to this year's crop. They're finding that actually there's been bumper crops in America this year. So that doesn't bode particularly well for crop prices of corn and soybean going forwards. But I think that certainly if there is an easing of tension in the trade war, that will help. There is also a sense that the underlying economic strength, the demand that drives the commodities markets, is probably not as weak as the speculators are making it seem when they're punishing a lot of these commodities. Okay, so if we had you back towards the end of the year and asked you, you know, where prices are likely to have gone, what's your answer likely to be? Well, as I I talked last week to um, one of the traders in Nebraska where he was going through the, the cornfields looking for signs of crop damage or whatever, he came out with the immortal line, Henry predicting the future is a son of a bitch. And, uh, and I think we should always bear that in mind when we're talking about commodities. It is a particularly uncertain time at the moment. There's likely to be a lot of volatility. But BHP, for example, which is the world's biggest mining company, it came out last week saying that though it was very worried about protectionism and the risk of a global slowdown, at present, it's not really seeing that damage in reality. Henry, thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. If you have any thoughts on this story or anything we've discussed today, please email us at radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. Finally, did you watch this? Logan Paul vs. KSI August 25th. Who's ready for the biggest internet event in history? Can't wait to punch you right in your stupid smug face. It was the biggest amateur boxing match of all time at the Manchester Arena on Saturday evening between KSI and Logan Paul, two YouTubers. Millions logged in to YouTube Premium to watch it, including, to my puzzlement, me and my son. Is this a sign of power shifting online from mainstream TV channels to YouTube? 
Josh Spencer, our social media writer, is here to explain. Hello, Josh. Hi. Okay, first of all, for the benefit of most people in the world listening to this, who are KSI and Logan Paul? KSI and Logan Paul are two YouTubers. KSI is probably the biggest YouTuber from the UK. He has 19 million subscribers. And he sort of came up years and years ago um, adding commentary to footage of him playing the video game FIFA. Logan Paul is from across the Atlantic in America, and he has 18 million subscribers. And so they're probably the two biggest YouTube stars on the planet right now. Okay, so the obvious question is, why are they beating each other to a pulp in a boxing ring? Back in February, KSI fought Joe Weller, who is a British uh, YouTuber, and that fight was huge. Uh, millions and millions of people watched. And after the fight in the ring, he called out Logan Paul. There's been a lot of questions as to whether it's a kind of real or a fake beef, as they say, but it's mainly to do with trying to drive views. So basically it's kind of, it's a bit like sort of bear v shark. It's just who would win in a fight between two famous people. That's, that's the attraction. Essentially, yeah. Okay, so how did it do? It did amazingly well. The Manchester Arena was filled out with 20,000 fans who all paid an average of about £135 for a ticket. And just under 800,000 people spent the £7.50 or $10 uh, to stream the event live on YouTube. For a bit of context, Tony Bellew and David Hay are two really, really famous British heavyweights, and they fought back in May, and that sold 775,000 pay-per-view bites. So it's the numbers that this event reached for two amateur boxers who have never stepped in the ring before is the same as some of the biggest heavyweight fights that have ever happened. So it's really shaken up the boxing industry. You could imagine that this this kind of format just gets repeated and multiplied, right? I mean, anyone can challenge anyone else on YouTube and there are sufficient numbers of YouTubers that we, we could spend our days watching these people fight each other now. We could see more fights in the future and I think we will. And I think in the aftermath of the event, I think some of the, the organisers spoke about different kinds of events. So uh, back in June, there was a charity football match between some famous YouTubers which filled out Charlton Athletic Stadium in England and there's been talk of a total wipeout style event with more YouTubers. So I think the opportunities shown from this event will continue. So who gained out of this commercially? Were there advertisers involved? And importantly, how did the fighters themselves do? The fight was organised by the uh, boxers themselves, the YouTube personalities. So they took most of the proceeds. It was hosted on YouTube and it's been reported that YouTube took a cut of the proceedings um, of the pay-per-view fee. And of course, the Google AdSense ads were alongside the stream. It's been reported that in total it made about £10 million. So. OK, so when we, should, we should let people know who perhaps don't. What happened? Who won? It was a draw. So it was very disappointing for uh, people who'd waited months and months in the build-up to see what would happen. So there's going to be a rematch in February, which is another opportunity for them to make more money. Yes, mugs, um, like, mugs <laughs> like me will be signing up again. And we may, we may talk about it at that point. But for the moment, Josh, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. We'd like to hear what you think about our podcasts, so please go to radio.economist.com slash survey. I'm Andrew Palmer. In London, this is The Economist.